We turn in sacred scripture to John chapters 3 and 18. The gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded by the Apostle John. John chapter 3, first of all, verses 1 through 8. Notice verse 3, especially as we read this section. John 3, verses 1 through 8. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, Master, Teacher, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Truly, truly, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, where it wants to, where it wills. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Then we turn to John chapter 18. We begin reading at verse 28. John 18, verse 28. Here too, Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God. Now He refers to it as My kingdom. John 18, verse 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early. This is the morning of His crucifixion. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and called Jesus, and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, And for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find no fault in him, I find in him no fault at all. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. 
Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So far we read from God's holy and infallible word. It's on the basis of these passages and many others that we have the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism as it's found in Lord's Day 48, found in the back of our Psalters on page 26. Lord's Day 48. Which is the second petition? Thy kingdom come. That is, rule us so by thy word and spirit that we may submit ourselves more and more to thee. Preserve and increase thy church. Destroy the works of the devil and all violence which would exalt itself against thee. And also all wicked counsels devised against thy holy word till the full perfection of thy kingdom take place, wherein thou shalt be all in all. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it seems that throughout all of history, there has been much confusion concerning this idea of the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. Of course, in Jesus' own day, there was much confusion. In Jesus' day, the vast majority of the Jews were looking for an earthly kingdom. An earthly kingdom that would conquer and replace the Roman Empire. We read in John chapter 6, that after Jesus performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000, the people wanted to take Him by force in in order to make Him their king. They wanted to make him their king, emphatically an earthly king, exactly because they saw that he could provide them bread, earthly bread. They wanted an earthly king for an earthly kingdom with earthly bread. At the time of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, the issue of Jesus' kingdom was of main concern to Pontius Pilate. Pilate didn't want Jesus to be a threat to the kingdom of Caesar. He didn't want to set Jesus free lest Jesus challenge the rule of Caesar himself or attempt to challenge the the rule of Caesar. As the people themselves cried out, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. Even Jesus' own disciples were confused about this matter. In Acts chapter 1, even right before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' disciples were still confused about what Jesus' kingdom actually consisted of. In Acts 1 verse 6, the disciples, still in hopes of an earthly kingdom, asked Jesus, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? This confusion has continued throughout the ages. Just think of the Crusades to the Holy Hand in the, in the Middle Ages. One of the, cruci- one of the great co- goals of the Crusades was to reclaim the territory of the Holy Lands of Israel, so-called Holy Lands, and in some sense reestablish the kingdom of God in that area of the world. Just think of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is glad to identify the kingdom of God with its own papal organization. Today, for many fundamentalists and evangelicals all over the world, the kingdom of God is a future Jewish nation in Palestine that will be ruled by Jesus with a rule that will continue over a thousand years. That's the kingdom of the premillennial dispensationalists. For others, the kingdom of God is a future world characterized by the absence of war and poverty, disease and discrimination, a time of earthly prosperity. That's the kingdom of God of the post-millennialists. And they all think of Jesus' kingdom in terms of an earthly kingdom. Even in our post-Christian, pagan American culture, we can give examples of confusion over what the kingdom of God is. 
I think we've all heard of the Black Lives Matter movement. The Black Lives Matter movement is a powerful movement today, and there are few organizations more committed to an anti-Christian agenda than Black Lives Matter. Not only is Black Lives Matter decidedly pro-homosexual, pro-homosexual in every gross form of homosexuality, not only is Black Lives Matter emphatically against the Christian definition of the family, but even leaders in the Black Lives Matter movement will make reference to Jesus in a way that shows that they would also like to make Jesus' kingdom a merely earthly kingdom. What will leaders in the Black Lives Matter do? They will try to make Jesus out to be a social activist, just like themselves. Jesus was a a social liberator. Jesus was a man, they say, who was fighting for social justice, who was put to death by the government, just like black men today. Listen to this quotation. This is a quotation from Hawk Newsom, the New York City Black Lives Matter president, from an interview he did with Fox. Quote, Jesus Christ is the most famous black radical revolutionary in history. And he was treated just like Dr. King. He was arrested on occasion, and he was also crucified or assassinated. This is what happens to black activists. We are killed by the government. End quote. To be honest, I don't think that those who support Black Lives Matter really care about who Jesus actually is. That's quite obvious. They simply want to use Jesus to push their own radical Marxist revolutionary agenda, just like the Jews wanted to use Jesus to push their own earthly kingdom and agenda, just like Judas Iscariot wanted to use Jesus for his own agenda. But I bring all of this up because this is very similar to how the kingdom of God is understood even by some who are inclined to call themselves Christian and even reform. As if Jesus was trying to establish an earthly kingdom. As if Jesus was trying to be a political, social activist whose mission was to establish social justice and earthly prosperity. This is also the real danger that confronts our students at Christian colleges, not to say anything of the public colleges. When the true gospel of Jesus Christ is eclipsed by and replaced with the social gospel, where the church is called to pursue social justice and equity for all, as if that were the very mission of Jesus himself, as if that was the reason Jesus came to this earth as if the battle we should be fighting as Christians is a battle against poverty, against diseases, against social inequality, a battle against discrimination of those who are so-called underprivileged. And it's an earthly, man-centered idea, entirely earthly. And that's always the danger. Man wants an earthly kingdom. That's the common theme throughout A man hates what the kingdom of God actually is and tries to redefine it and change it to serve the lusts of the flesh. And many Christians are are attracted to this and they want to buy into this because they, they want to be relevant to the world. They want to have the respect of the world and they want the people of the world to praise them for what they are doing as Christians. And what makes all of this very relevant to the sermon this morning is the fact that even in Christian colleges and in other places, they use this very language of kingdom building and extending God's kingdom to defend their social gospel. They use this language that sounds biblical in order to promote a social gospel that ultimately is no gospel at all. And what is happening is that there's absolutely no understanding of what the kingdom of God actually is. And there's absolutely no understanding that also of what the gospel itself is. The good news of salvation from sin through the shed blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because everyone is so focused on that which is earthly, something that is visible, and something that has earthly recognition 
and prestige and power. And in fact, in churches today, people will say, if your minister is not preaching about social justice and promoting it, then you should leave that church and join another. Well, in all these things, beloved, we need to get back to the basics. The basics even of understanding what the kingdom of God itself is. And we get back to the basics this morning by looking at the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. In the second petition, Jesus teaches us to pray for the coming of God's kingdom. We need to make sure we understand what Jesus is talking about. Take as our theme, praying for the coming of our Father's kingdom. We look at that theme under two points. First, we look at the kingdom, and that will take the vast majority of the sermon, and then we look at the prayer. What is the kingdom of God? Well, we've already stated what it is not to some extent. Let us now say what it is. The kingdom of God is the spiritual rule of the triune God through Jesus Christ in His Holy Spirit by His Holy Spirit, in the hearts and lives of His elect people. The kingdom of God is the spiritual rule of God's grace, of the triune God, through Jesus Christ, by His Holy Spirit, in the hearts and lives of His elect people. Yes, God is also the one who rules over all things through His absolute sovereign power, But that's not what we're talking about here in the second petition when we speak of the kingdom of God. Rather, we're talking about the spiritual rule of the triune God through Jesus Christ, by His Holy Spirit, in the hearts and lives of His elect people. And what we should immediately understand about that definition is that God's kingdom is emphatically a spiritual kingdom. That's why we read from John 3 and John 18, because both those passages emphasize that truth. In John 3, verse 3, Jesus says, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And what Jesus means is this, in order to see the kingdom of God, you need spiritual eyes. You need spiritual life. You need to be raised from spiritual death to spiritual life in order to see the kingdom of God because the kingdom is spiritual. In John 18, verse 36, Jesus says to Pontius Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. And what Jesus means is this, My kingdom is not an earthly, physical kingdom. If my kingdom were an earthly, physical kingdom, then my disciples would take up their swords, take up their shields, and they would fight that I should not be crucified. But now you need to understand my kingdom is not from this world. Also in another passage, in Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus is very explicit. In Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus says, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. God's kingdom is emphatically spiritual. Now that doesn't mean that God's kingdom is any less real than an earthly kingdom. Sometimes very foolishly we are prone to think that way. That if it's not earthly, if it's not physical, then it's somehow less real. In our Western culture, that's how people are ingrained to think. But that's not how we think. As Christians, we still understand there is both a physical reality and a spiritual reality. We are not just physical creatures, we are spiritual creatures. There is a spiritual reality, a very real spiritual reality. Heaven and hell, angels and demons sin and grace, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. The kingdom of God is spiritual in nature. It is spiritual in nature because it is the the work and the creation of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Just as Nebuchadnezzar, the man, created Babylon, 
Just as Hitler created Nazi Germany, so the Holy Spirit creates, brings about the kingdom of God. It's therefore a spiritual kingdom. It is spiritual in nature because the life and power of this kingdom is the very life and power of the risen and exalted Jesus Christ who in His resurrection has been made a quickening spirit. Jesus and everything about Him is spiritual. And so His kingdom too is spiritual. And it is spiritual also because it is the rule of God's grace in the hearts and lives of His people. The kingdom of God does not consist of physical territory on this earth. The kingdom of God is not ruled by physical or political force. The kingdom of God does not promise or provide earthly physical blessings or goods, earthly privilege, earthly peace or prosperity. The kingdom of God does not possess or display any earthly glory, earthly power, earthly weapons, earthly numbers, or earthly size. And its citizens are not citizens by virtue of any earthly characteristic whether it be their ethnicity or sex or nationality or status or achievement, these things are not relevant in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is spiritual. That's also why it's called the kingdom of heaven. That is its nature. That is its quality. It is heavenly. It is not earthly. It is heavenly. That's where it originates. That's where it comes from. And that's where it, that's its nature. We could put it this way. The kingdom of God is the heavenly life and power of Jesus Christ breaking into our world. The kingdom of God is the heavenly power and life of Jesus Christ breaking into our world. Yes, in the Old Testament, there was the kingdom of God. God ruled in the hearts and lives of His people in the Old Testament. But we could also put it this way. Through Jesus' incarnation and His earthly ministry, that kingdom came into our world. That's why John the Baptist said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. By the outpouring of the Holy through His suffering and death on the cross, the foundations of that spiritual kingdom were established. By the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, that kingdom burst forth into our world in a very powerful way. And through the preaching of the gospel, first by the apostles and then by faithful churches throughout history, Jesus extends that kingdom throughout the world. And yet all of it is spiritual. The kingdom is spiritual. And how does Jesus extend that kingdom? He extends it and he builds it up by translating fallen and totally depraved sinners out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom of light, making them partakers of his life, his power, through the bond of faith which he establishes by his Holy Spirit. That's what we pray for when we pray, Thy kingdom come. This is the reality. There are two spiritual kingdoms in the world. There is the kingdom of Satan, characterized by sin. And there is the kingdom of God, characterized by righteousness. And every person in this world either belongs to that kingdom of Satan or to the kingdom of God. That's the reality when we walk and live on this earth. Everyone is either a citizen of the kingdom of darkness or of the kingdom of light. And the citizens of the kingdom of God are those, as Colossians 1 verse 13 puts it, whom God hath delivered from the power of darkness and hath translated into the kingdom of His dear Son and who are now ruled by His grace, who live by faith in God's promises and who walk in the paths of righteousness. That's how Jesus extends and builds up His kingdom by ransacking the kingdom of darkness, gathering His elect out of that kingdom, and then preserving them, protecting them, and building them up spiritually. The kingdom of God is emphatically spiritual. Yes, the church is gathered on the earth. Yes, the church meets in earthly buildings. And yes, the church is made up of God's elect who live their earthly lives as citizens also of earthly kingdoms. But the church, the kingdom of God, is not earthly. It is spiritual. What we can also emphasize about this kingdom is that it is emphatically the kingdom of God. 
It's the kingdom of God in every way. In this kingdom, God rules. In this kingdom, God is king. And it is called the kingdom of God because God is the one who establishes, maintains, and perfects that kingdom and everything about it. God conceived and planned this kingdom in His eternal decree. God founded this kingdom in the cross of His incarnate Son. God builds this kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. He brings everyone who is a citizen, according to eternal election, into this kingdom by the sovereign wonder of regeneration. Having regenerated, He is also the God who sanctifies every citizen to live the life of the kingdom and preserves every citizen to the glory of the perfection of the kingdom. God is the one who will perfect the kingdom in the day of Jesus Christ, raising the dead and renewing the entire creation of heaven and earth. And that was too what we are praying for when we pray, Thy kingdom come. God, God only, is the creator, the origin of this kingdom. The kingdom comes from Him, not from man. And the kingdom therefore depends upon God and God only. It's also called the kingdom of God because God created it for His glory. The kingdom of God is emphatically God-centered, not man-centered. Everything about the kingdom is God-centered. It's all about the hallowing of His name. That's why we pray now, Thy kingdom come, so that His name might be hallowed. In the kingdom, God's will, as revealed in His Word, governs the life and the behavior of the citizens. His Word governs our personal lives. It governs our church membership. It governs our relationships. It governs our life in politics. It governs how we eat and drink. And in this kingdom, all our wills and all our pleasures and all our lives are so subject to the King that when it may be necessary, we we are called to sacrifice them for His glory. It's all for the King. The fact is, the kingdom of God does not exist for the sake of the citizens, but the citizens exist for the King. It's not my kingdom. It's not your kingdom. It's God's kingdom. He is the King. Everything is for the King, to whom be glory and honor forever and ever. At the same time, however, the reality is this. Just as God is the King who has delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into His own kingdom, so He is also the gracious and glorious King who continues to protect and preserve us as citizens of His kingdom. And God rules, in fact, so graciously in the hearts of His people that He makes them willingly yield to His Lordship and obey Him in every sphere of life and gladly suffer the loss of all things for His sake. They are made willing in the day of His power. And all this too serves His glory. God is a King who is more than worthy of the perfect homage of all His people. Now in the Bible, this kingdom is also called the kingdom of Christ. In John 18, verse 36, Jesus refers to this kingdom as my kingdom, His kingdom. And it's the kingdom of Jesus Christ because God has given it to Jesus Christ for Jesus to rule on God's behalf. That's the honor God gave Jesus at his ascension into heaven. God gave him a golden scepter, gave him a golden crown, and he gave him power to rule over all things and to rule also the kingdom of God on God's behalf. It's a kingdom whose foundations have been established in the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This kingdom is emphatically God's kingdom and Jesus' kingdom. And the third thing we can say is this. Not only is this kingdom spiritual, not only is it emphatically the kingdom of God, but this kingdom manifests itself, shows itself here on earth in the church. And we can even say this. On this earth, the kingdom of God is the church. In the Old Testament, the kingdom of God was typified by the nation of Israel, which was the church. Church and kingdom were one. In the New Testament, the kingdom of God 
is the church. Just ask yourself, where does God rule by His Word and Spirit? Where do we find righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost? Where is truth? Where are the people who bow willingly to God in Christ by believing the gospel and obeying the law? Obeying the law truly from their hearts. Who have God truly as their all in all. Where in the past 2,000 years of church history have there always been these realities? Where alone are these realities found? The answer to those questions will be the identification of the kingdom. And the answer is the church. The church is the kingdom of God. And that's the confession of the Reformed faith, both among the Reformed and the Presbyterian. We have it confessed here in Lord's Day 48. We also have it taught explicitly in in Belgian Confession, Articles 32 and 28. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way, quote, The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. And what we should understand is that we're not just talking here about the invisible church. We're talking about the instituted church, the local instituted church, the local congregation that displays the marks of the true church is the kingdom of God. Congregation, here this morning, we are the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God. What are we doing right now? We, we are exercising one of the keys of the kingdom, the preaching of the gospel. Randolph Protestant Reformed Church is the manifestation in this world of the spiritual kingdom of God. And every other true church is as well. Yes, the kingdom of God is spiritual, but just because it is spiritual doesn't mean that it doesn't show itself here on this earth. The kingdom of God is in the world, but it's not of the world, just like you and me. The church of God is a kingdom that exists in and alongside earthly kingdoms. But it remains itself a spiritual kingdom. And that's what we are, beloved. Recognize that what we are doing here this morning is spiritual. What exists here in our midst is spiritual. Don't look at the walls. Don't look at the pews. Don't look at the carpet. That's physical. All those things are irrelevant. That's why we don't have pictures either or banners. Those things are irrelevant. And the state, the government, can impose rules over how we build our church building and the fire codes and all the rest. Don't look at those things. Look at the worship. Look at the preaching. Look at the administration of the sacraments. Look at the work that the elders are doing. It is all spiritual work. Consider also right now that you and I are fellowshipping with God. Right now we are in the most holy place. We are in the temple of our God. In prayer and in the preaching, right now your King is speaking to you. This is spiritual. Consider also this. Jesus exercises his kingship through a body of elders whom he has called into holy office. They are rulers in the church. They administer the word of the king. They are overseeing the preaching right now. They, you, through the office bearers, appointed by Christ, through you, you are carrying out the preaching that the world might hear and see, and that you might be maintained as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are worshiping this morning according to the dictates of our king. Jesus Christ is the one alone who exercises authority over the local instituted church. Look also at our, our communion. Look also at our, our fellowship. 
It's all spiritual. It's caring for each other. It's loving one another. It's admonishing one another. All of this is spiritual. And this is the kingdom of God as it comes to manifestation, as it reveals itself here on earth. First, in the instituted congregation. And then second, as you live as members of the local church, and as you live in your own personal lives out of the means of grace that you've enjoyed and that you partake of as members of the local instituted church. The church, the invisible church of Jesus Christ, as that invisible church shows itself here on this earth in local instituted congregations. And then further, as that church manifests herself in the personal lives of the members of those instituted congregations, that church is the kingdom of God. That's where we find the rule of God's grace. Now when we say all of that, that has huge implications. First, it means this. If you have a concern for the kingdom of God, it will show itself, first of all, in a concern and love for the church, the instituted church. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praying for the church, the local instituted church. The instituted church, in fact, is not just the manifestation of the kingdom of God here on earth. The instituted church is also what God uses to maintain and extend that kingdom. How does God protect you and maintain you as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Through the means of grace that are found only in the instituted church. If we love the kingdom of God, it means we will have a deep and passionate love for the church. You can't be a member of the kingdom of God and not have a love for the instituted church and her members. This is also relevant because there are some who talk about kingdom building and kingdom work in such a way that they virtually denigrate and ignore and despise the place of the instituted church. And they, they would even be inclined to talk more about the Christian college as if the Christian college is more relevant in our day and age for kingdom building than the churches. Practically, that's how many people behave themselves, even many college students. We must understand, as much as we love our Christian schools and colleges, we should understand, without the church, these schools don't even exist. But it's out of the church, and it's out of the lives of the members of the church living in communion with each other that explains the schools. And that should explain the Christian colleges. It's our life in the church. It's our membership in the church that determines also our life at college, and that also determines what those colleges and schools do. You can't be a Christian. You can't be saved without the church. The church is the very kingdom into which a person is brought when he is saved. Second, when we say that the church is the kingdom of God on the earth, this also helps us understand why the unbelieving world is so set against the instituted church and her practices and her very existence. Because the unbelieving world sees the church as a rival kingdom, a kingdom that stands against sin, and a kingdom that judges and condemns what the unbelieving world calls good. It's a kingdom that they don't want to exist in the world. That's the warning that our own Belgic Confession gives us in Article 28, that the consistory may never suffer, may never allow the royal government of Christ over his church to be in the least infringed upon. And yet more and more we see this is what members in our society, desire. They would like to bring the church under the jurisdiction and legislation of the state. They would like to have control over the church. I think the day is not far off in our Western culture where the civil government will charge the church with so-called hate crimes 
if the church and her officers do not bow down to the agenda of our culture, and if the church refuses to be silent concerning wicked and perverted sins, if it's not already happening now. The church may not allow that to happen. The church is her own nation. The church is a spiritual nation. She is a spiritual kingdom, and no earthly kingdom may meddle in her government. For a consistory or a denomination, a synod, to allow the authority of some earthly government to override the authority of Christ in the congregation and denomination is treason. And this has happened in the past. It happened in the Lutheran churches in Germany during the days of Hitler, where he took over those Lutheran churches. It has happened in communist churches, communist countries, where the church allowed communist and socialist governments to usurp the authority that belongs only to Jesus Christ. We must understand that many Christians have been murdered and killed as martyrs exactly for this reason. At the time of the Reformation, thousands of Reformed Christians were murdered and butchered because they refused to submit to the hierarchical authority that civil governments were imposing upon the church. In the 17th century, many of our Scottish Presbyterian brothers died because they would not allow the king of England and his archbishop to intrude upon the Presbyterian, the reformed government of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. There is nothing new under the sun, beloved. Either you capitulate to the kingdoms of the world, or you stand fast, jealous, for the crown rights of King Jesus over his church. That's a warning for us in our own country, in our own society, as we appear to advance more and more towards socialism and communism. This is what we in our own churches will face as well. This is why we, we have to have a clear understanding of what the kingdom of God is. This is why Satan is working to, to put away the right understanding of what the kingdom of God is. The state has no say whatsoever over the worship of the church. The church is not an earthly institution. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's not an earthly organization. It's not an earthly club. Everything about it is spiritual. The state is earthly. The state has no say, no jurisdiction over the church and her worship. It will try. In the hands of the devil, it will try. That's exactly what the work of the devil is. And ultimately, at the end of the world... That's exactly when we will see the kingdom of darkness be fully established on the world and we will see Antichrist. And where will he be sitting? He will be sitting in the temple in the midst of the false church that has given him that power and authority that belongs to Christ alone. Satan will strive to make his kingdom an earthly kingdom. And yet all the while, as he makes his kingdom an earthly kingdom, The kingdom of God itself remains a spiritual kingdom. And that's the difficulty we have. It remains spiritual while Satan goes ahead and establishes earthly kingdoms. When the church goes through that persecution in the last days, then the church will also be reminded that she is spiritual. She will have no property. She will have no earthly glory. She will have no earthly prestige. And then she will remember, this is spiritual. We are spiritual. Our glory is spiritual. Everything about who we are as instituted churches is spiritual. Now let me ask you this. In all this discussion about the kingdom of God, how much have we actually discussed social justice? How much have we actually discussed doing works for the greater good of humanity? building hospitals, digging wells, planting trees. This is not to say that we are entirely uninterested in justice in our society. In fact, for the sake of the church, for the sake of our own lives as Christians living in earthly kingdoms, we do have a care 
for justice and righteousness in our society. We ought to emphasize the reality of personal responsibility that's being, that's being attacked in our society today by Marxist revolutionary philosophy. We ought to emphasize that the state should be a rewarder of them that do good and a punisher of them that do evil. That's under attack today in our own culture. There are many who want to change that. But then even even then, why do we have a concern for these things? To promote justice and righteousness in our land. Not because we have an eye on an earthly kingdom, because, but because we have an eye first on the well-being of the church. And we want there to be righteousness to dwell in our land exactly because we believe, we think, and we've experienced in the past that that serves for the good purposes of the spiritual kingdom of the church. The point is, what is actually the kingdom of God? It's not anything you can see with your eyes. Even this morning, beloved, if an unbeliever were here, he wouldn't be seeing and experiencing anything that the believer is experiencing. The unbeliever is dead. He cannot see the kingdom of God. The believer is alive. You are living right now, and you're living out of that faith right now. The unbeliever is blind. The unbeliever can't even see what we're talking about. The kingdom of God is foolishness to him. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the spiritual rule of the triune God through Jesus Christ, by His Holy Spirit, in the hearts and lives of His elect people. That very definition is foolishness. Not only to the Jews of Jesus' day, not only to the Gentiles of Caesar's empire, but also of the unbeliever yet today. And what is kingdom work? What now is kingdom work? It's simply the work that you and I do as citizens of the kingdom serving the king. It's the work you and I do from the heart. The work that we have been commissioned and assigned to do by our king. In our homes, in our families, in our marriages, at work, at church. Being faithful to the callings and responsibilities that have been laid upon us from our king. Defending the gospel. Promoting the honor of the king in our marriages, in the office, in whatever earthly relationships God has given us. Not first serving humanity, but first exclusively then serving King Jesus in the callings He has put upon us. Not making up any callings for our own, but being faithful in the callings He has assigned to us. And now when we have a clear understanding of what the kingdom of God is, then we can also be really brief about what we mean when we pray this second petition, thy kingdom come. What do we mean? The kingdom puts it, or the catechism puts it beautifully. Rule us. Rule me. Rule me by thy word and spirit that I might more and more submit unto thee In every aspect of my life, rule my marriage. Rule my family. Rule me as I live the single life. Rule thy people. Rule us here in thy church. Write thy law upon my heart so that I might live no more for my own little kingdom, but I might live exclusively for thy kingdom and thy honor. Deliver me then from a murderous heart. Deliver me from the deceitful tongue and lying vanities and cruel speech. Sanctify me that thy kingdom may come in me because the kingdom of God is within you. Then preserve and increase thy church, the catechism says. The invisible church, yes, but then also the instituted church. This church, preserve and increase Randolph, Protestant Reformed Church, prosper her spiritually. Cause us to understand and enjoy and set forth and defend and live the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ more fully. Bless our office bearers, O Lord. 
as they stand on the front lines doing thy work, serving us. Bless our fellowship and unity. Give us the truth. Give us righteousness and peace. Prosper our evangelism efforts. Prosper our mission work. And then prosper the church wherever she is found on this earth. And then the catechism says, destroy the works of the devil and all violence which would exalt itself against thee and also all wicked counsels devised against thy holy word. And then finally, till the full perfection of thy kingdom take place wherein thou shalt be all in all. Come, Lord Jesus, within me. Come, Lord Jesus, in this church. Rule over us. Come, Lord Jesus, on the clouds of heaven. Come quickly. So that the kingdom of Satan will be finally, decisively, completely destroyed. Then thy saints will be perfectly made righteous, clothed with righteousness perfectly, completely free from sin, perfectly devoted to thy name. Then thy glory will fill the earth in the new heavens and new earth, and then indeed thou shalt be all in all. That's the perfection we are waiting for. That's the perfection we want. And that's the prayer Jesus is teaching us in this second petition. Beloved, may the Lord give us the grace to pray this petition with right understanding. And then may He also give us the peace and assurance knowing that He is answering our prayer and He will answer it. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, hallowed be Thy name. To that end, may Thy kingdom come. Write this petition on our hearts and may we pray it in all its fullness and beauty. And may we pray it with earnest by the power of Thy Holy Spirit. Bless this preaching to our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.